All right, welcome back to Books at Bedtime. Sorry, I'm a little bit late today. Um, let's see here. Chapter 24, Shadows Themselves. Through all my time in Tarbine, I continued to learn, though most of the lessons were painful and unpleasant. I learned how to beg. It was a very practical application of acting with a very difficult audience. I did it well, but... Waterside money was tight, and an empty begging bowl meant a cold, hungry night. Through dangerous trial and error, I discovered the proper way to slit a purse and pick a pocket. I was especially good at the latter. Locks and latches of all kinds soon gave up their secrets to me. My nimble fingers were put to a use my parents or Abanthe never would have guessed. I learned to run from anyone with an unnaturally white smile. Denner resin, <clears throat> let me say that again, Denner resin slowly bleaches your teeth, so if a sweet eater lives long enough for their teeth to grow fully white, chances are they have already sold everything they have worth selling. Tarbine is full of dangerous people, but none as dangerous as a sweet eater filled with the desperate craving for more resin. They will kill you for a pair of pennies. I learned how to lash together makeshift shoes out of rags. Real shoes became a thing of dreams for me. The first two years it seemed like my feet were always cold or cut or both. But by the third year, by the third year my feet were like old leather, and I could run barefoot for hours over the rough stones of the city and not feel it at all. I learned not to expect help from anyone. In the bad parts of Tarbine, a call for help attracts predators like the smell of blood on the wind. I was sleeping on the rooftops, snugged tightly into my secret place where three roofs met. I awoke from a deep sleep to the sound of harsh laughter and pounding feet in the alley below me. The slapping footsteps stopped and more laughter followed. The sound of ripping cloth might the slapping footsteps stopped, and more laughter followed the sound of ripping cloth. There it is. Okay. Slipping to the edge of the roof, I looked down to the alley below. I saw several large boys, almost men. They were dressed as I was, rags and dirt. There may have been five... Let's see, there, there may have been five, maybe six of them. They moved in and out of the shadows, like shadows themselves. Their chests heaved from their run and I could hear their breath from the roof above. The object of the chase was in the middle of the alley, a young boy eight years old at most. One of the older boys was holding him down. The young boy's bare skin shone pale in the moonlight. There was another sound of ripping cloth, and the boy gave a soft cry that ended in a choked sob. The others watched and talked in low, urgent tones with each other, wearing hard, hungry smiles. I'd been chased before at night several times. I'd been caught two months ago. Looking down, I was surprised to find a heavy red roof tile in my hand ready to throw. Then I paused, looking back to my secret place. I had a rag blanket and a half a loaf of bread there. My rainy day money was hidden here. Eight iron pennies I had hoarded for when my luck turned bad. And most valuable of all, Ben's book. I was safe here. Even if I hit one of them, the rest would be on the roof in two minutes. 
Then, even if I got away, I wouldn't have anywhere to go. I set down the tile. I went back to what had become my home and curled myself into the shelter of the niche underneath the overhanging roof. I twisted my blanket in my hands and clenched my teeth, trying to shut out the low rumble of conversation punctuated by coarse laughter and quiet, hopeless sobbing from below. 25. Interlude. Eager for reasons. Kvothe gestured for Chronicler to set down his pen and stretched, lacing his fingers together above his head. It's been a long time since I remembered that, he said. If you are eager to find the reason I became the Kvothe they tell stories about, you could look there, I suppose. Chronicler's forehead wrinkled. What do you mean, exactly? Kvothe paused for a long moment, looking down at his hands. Do you know how many times I've been beaten over the course of my life? Chronicler shook his head. Looking up, Kvoth grinned and tossed his shoulders in a nonchalant shrug. Neither do I. You'd think that sort of thing would stick in a person's mind. You'd think I would remember how many bones I've had broken. You'd think I'd remember the stitches and bandages. He shook his head. I don't. I remember that young boy sopping in the dark. Clear as a bell after all these years. Chronicler frowned. You said yourself there was that there was nothing you could have done. I could have, Kvothe said seriously. And I didn't. I made my choice and I regret it to this day. Bones mend. Regret stays with you forever. Kvothe pushed himself away from the table. That's enough of Tarbine's darker side, I imagine. He came to his feet and gave a great stretch, arms over his head. Why, Reshi? The words poured out of Bast in a sudden gush. In a sudden gush. Why did you stay there when it was so awful? Kvothe nodded to himself, as if he had been expecting the question. Where else there... Where else was there for me to go, Bast? Everyone I knew was dead. Not everyone, Bast insisted. There was Abanthi. You could have gone to him. Hallowfell was hundreds of miles away, Bast... Kvothe said wearily, as he wandered to the other side of the room and moved behind the bar. Hundreds of miles without my father's maps to guide me. Hundreds of miles without wagons to ride or sleep in, without help of any sort or money or shoes. Not an impossible journey, I suppose, but for a young child, still numb with the shock of losing his parents. Kvothe shook his head. No... In Tarbine, at least I could beg or steal. I'd managed to survive in the forest for a summer, barely, but over the winter? He shook his head. I would have starved or frozen to death. Standing at the bar, Kvothe filled his mug and began to add pinches of spice from several small containers, then walked toward the great stone fireplace, a thoughtful expression on his face. You're right, of course. Anywhere would have been better than Tarbine. He shrugged, facing the fire. But we are all creatures of habit. It is far too easy to stay in the familiar ruts we dig for ourselves. Perhaps I even viewed it as fair, my punishment for not being there to help when the Chandrian came. My punishment for not dying when I should have with the rest of my family. Ooh, sounds like um, survivor's guilt, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's the term. 
Bast opened his mouth, then closed it and looked down at the tabletop, frowning. Foth looked over his shoulder and gave a gentle smile. I'm not saying it's rational, Bast. Emotions, by their very nature, are not reasonable things. I don't feel that way now, but back then I did. I remember. He turned back to the fire. Ben's training has given me a memory so clean and sharp I have to be careful not to cut myself sometimes. Kvoth took a mulling stone from the fire and dropped it into his wooden mug. It sank with a sharp hiss. The smell of searing clove and nutmeg filled the room. Kvoth stirred his cider with a long-handled spoon as he made his way back to the table. Now, let's see. Um, I think... I think Kvoth... Let's see, after two years in Tarbin, that would make him 14? Because I think he was... He was 12 when the, uh, tragedy happened. Uh, let's see. <clears throat> uh, you must also remember that I was not in my right mind. Much of me was still in shock, sleeping, if you will. I needed something or someone to wake me up. He nodded to Chronicler, who casually took, uh, who casually shook his writing hand to loosen it, then unstoppered his inkwell. Gwoth leaned back in his seat. I needed to be reminded of things I had forgotten. I needed a reason to leave. It was years before I met someone who could do those things. He smiled at Chronicler. Before I met Scarpy. Oh, hey, uh, yeah, Scarpy's the uh, Scarpy's the one that Chronicler was going to go see in wherever it was that Chronicler was going to. Um, let's see. Twenty-six. Lanray turned. Okay, I gotta double-check that I'm saying that right, because it just feels like I'm saying it wrong. Okay, let's see. Uh, as in magic. Okay. I think I accidentally called Lanra's right wife, um, Lyra, but it's it's uh, Lyra. Let's say Lan. Oh, and it's with a a sound as in fable. So a is magic. Lan Lanray. Lanray. Okay, it's spelled a L A N R E. Lan. Lanray. Lanray. It's, it's awkward. It's just, I feel it should, like it should be Lanray. It's Lanray. Okay. I had been... 26. Lanray turned. I had been in Tarbin for years at this point. Three birthdays had slipped by unnoticed. Okay, so he's just past it. Oh, he's saying that. <laughs> okay, I should just read. Um, three birthdays had slipped by unnoticed, and I was just past 15. I knew how to survive Waterside. I had become an accomplished beggar and thief. Locks and pockets opened to my touch. I knew which pawn shops bought goods, quote, from uncle, unquote, with no questions asked. I, oh, so good fences. Okay. Um, I was still ragged and frequently hungry, but I was in no real danger of starving. I had been slowly building my rainy day money. 
even after a hard winter that had frequently forced me to pay for a warm spot to sleep, my hoard was over twenty iron pennies. It was like a dragon's treasure to me. I had grown comfortable there, but aside from the desire to add to my rainy day money, I had nothing to live for, nothing driving me, nothing to look forward to. My days were spent looking for things to steal and ways to entertain myself. But that had changed a few days earlier in Trappist's basement. I had heard a young girl speaking in an odd voice about a storyteller who spent all his time in a dockside bar called the Half-Mast. Apparently, every sixth bell he told a story. Any story you asked for, he knew. What's more, she said that he had a bet going. If he didn't know your story, he would give you a whole talent. I thought about what the girl <clears throat> I thought about what the girl had said for the rest of the day. I doubted it was true, but I couldn't help thinking about what I could do with a whole silver talent. I could buy shoes and maybe a knife, give money to Trappist, and still double my rainy day fund. Even if the girl was lying about the bet, I was still interested. Entertainment was hard to come by on the streets. Occasionally, some ragamuffin troupe would mum a play on a street corner, or I'd hear a fiddler in a pub, but most real entertainment cost money, and my hard-won pennies were too precious to squander. But there was a problem. Dockside wasn't safe for me. I, I should explain. More than a year before, I had seen Pike walking down the street. It had been the first time I had seen him since my first day in Tarbine when he and his friends had jumped me in that alley and destroyed my father's loot. I followed him carefully for the better part of a day, keeping my distance and staying in the shadows. Eventually, he went home to a little box alley in Dockside, where he had his own version of my secret place. He was a nest of Oh, his was a nest of broken crates he had cobbled together to keep the weather off. I perched on the roof all night, waiting until he left the next morning. Then I made my way down to his nest of crates and looked around. It was cozy, filled with the accumulated small possessions of several years. He had a bottle of beer, which I drank. There was also half a cheese that I ate, and a shirt that I stole, as it was slightly less raggedy than my own. Further searching revealed various odds and ends, a candle, a ball of string, some marbles. Most surprising were several pieces of sailcloth with charcoal drawings of a woman's face. I had to search for nearly ten minutes until I found what I was really looking for. Hidden away behind everything else was a small wooden box that showed signs of much handling. It held a bundle of dried violets tied with a white ribbon a toy horse that had lost most of its string mane, and a lock of curling blonde hair. It took me several minutes with flint and steel to get the fire going. The violets were good tinder, and soon greasy clouds of smoke were billowing high in the air. I stood by and watched as everything Pike loved went up in, went up in flames, but I stayed too long, savoring the moment. Pike and a friend came running down the box alley drawn by the smoke, and I was trapped. Furious, Pike jumped me. He was taller by six inches and outweighed me by fifty pounds. Worse, he had a piece of broken glass wrapped with twine at one end, making a crude knife. He stabbed me once in the thigh right above my knee before I smashed his hand into the cobblestones, shattering the knife. After that, he still gave me a black eye and several broken ribs before I managed to kip, 
to kick him squarely between the legs and get free. As I pelted away, he limped after me, shouting that he would kill me for what I'd done. I believed him. After patching up my leg, I took every bit of rainy day money I had saved and bought five pints of dreg, a cheap foul liquor strong enough to blister the inside of your mouth. Then I limped into Dockside and waited for Pike and his friends to spot me. It didn't take long. I let him and two of his friends follow me for half a mile past Seemling Lane and into, the, into Tallows. I kept to the main roads, knowing they wouldn't dare attack me in broad daylight when people were around. But when I darted into a side alley, they hurried to catch up, suspecting I was trying to make a run for it. However, when they turned the corner, no one was there. Pike thought to look up just as I was pouring the bucket of drag onto him from the edge of the low roof above. It doused him, splashing across his face and chest. He screamed and clutched at his eyes as he went to his knees. Then I struck the phosphorus match I'd stolen and dropped it onto him, watching it sputter and flare as it fell. Full of the pure, hard hatred of a child, I hoped he would burst into a pillar of flame. He didn't, but did catch fire. He screamed again and staggered around while his friends swatted at him, trying to put him out. I left while they were busy. It had been over a year ago, and I hadn't seen Pike since. He hadn't tried to find me, and I had stayed well clear of Dockside, sometimes going miles out of my way rather than pass near it. It was a kind of truce. However, I didn't doubt that Pike and his friends remembered what I looked like and were willing to settle the score if they spotted me. After thinking it over, I decided it was too dangerous. Even the promise of free stories and a chance at a silver talent wasn't worth stirring things up with Pike again. Besides, what story would I ask for? The question rolled around in my head for the next few days. What story would I ask for? I jostled up against a dock worker and was cuffed away before I could get my hand all the way into his pocket. What story? I begged on the street, corner opposite of the Italian church. What story? I stole three loaves of bread and took two of them down to Trappist as a gift. What story? Now, let's see, I should, should make sure I'm pronouncing Talon correctly. Might be Talon or something. Yep, it's Talon. God damn it, Patrick Rothfuss. Okay, um, <clears throat> so it's spelled T-E-H-L-I-N, so I was pronouncing it Talon, but apparently it is Talon, and so it is also Talu, not Telu. Talon, Talon, okay. <sighs> okay, let's see, let's see. Then, as I lay on the rooftops in my secret place where three roofs met, it came to me just as I was about to drift off to sleep. Landre. Of course. I could ask him for the real story of Landre. The story my father had been. My heart stuttered in my chest as I suddenly remembered things I had avoided for years. My father idly strumming at his lute, my mother beside him in the wagon singing. Reflexively, I began to draw away from the memories, the way you might pull your hand back from a fire, but I, I was surprised to find these memories held only a gentle ache, not the deep pain I expected. 
Instead, I found a small, budding excitement at the thought of hearing a story my father would have sought out. A story he himself might have told. Still, I knew it to be sheer folly to go running dockside for the sake of a story. All the hard practicality Tarbine had taught me over the years urged me to stay in my familiar corner of the world where I was safe. The first thing I saw on entering the half-mast was Scarpy. <laughs> he was sitting on a tall stool at the bottom. Man, that uh, insatiable curiosity, huh? That'll get you. What is it they say? Curiosity killed the cat, but satisfaction brought it back. Anyway. Okay. Uh, he was sitting on a tall stool at the bar, an old man with eyes like diamonds and the body of a driftwood scarecrow. He was thin and weathered, with thick white hair on his arms and face and head. The whiteness stood out from his deep brown tan, making him seem splashed with wave foam. At his feet were a group of twenty children, some few my age, some uh, most younger. They were a strange mix to see, ranging from grubby, shoeless urchins like myself to reasonably well-dressed, well-scrubbed children who probably had parents and homes. None of them looked familiar to me, but I never knew who might be a friend of Pike's. I found a place near the door with my back to the wall and sank down onto my haunches. Scarpy cleared his throat once or twice in a way that made me thirsty. Then, with ritual significance, he looked mournfully into the clay mug that sat in front of him and carefully turned it upside down on the bar. The children surged forward, pressing coins onto the bar. I did a quick count. Two iron half-pennies, nine shims, and a drab. Altogether, just a little over three iron pennies in Commonwealth coin. Maybe he was no longer offering the silver talent bet. More likely the rumor I'd heard was wrong. The old man nodded almost imperce imperceptibly to the bartender. Fellows read. His voice was... Oh, let's see. Fellows read. His voice was deep and rough, almost hypnotic. The bald man behind the bar gathered up the coins and deftly poured wine into Scarpy's wide clay cup. So, what would everyone like to hear about today? Scarpy rumbled, his deep voice rolling out like distant thunder. There was a moment of silence that again struck me as ritualistic, almost reverent. Then a babble burst forth from all the children at once. I want a fairy story. Orin and the fight at Manats. Yes, Orin Velsiter, the one with Baron Lartem, Mir Terinel, or let's see, Mir Terinel, Ilian and the Bear, Lanre, I said, almost without meaning to. The room went still again as Scarpy took a drink. The children watched him with a familiar intensity I couldn't quite identify. Scarpy sat calmly in the middle of the quiet. Did I? His voice rolled out slowly like dark honey. Here's someone say, Lanray. He looked directly at me, his blue eyes clear and sharp. I nodded, not knowing what to expect. I want to hear about the dry lands over the storm wall, one of the younger girls complained, about the sand snakes that come out of the ground like sharks. <laughs> Talking about Dune. Okay, uh... <laughs> And the dry men who hide under the dunes and drink your blood instead of water. And 
She was cuffed quickly into silence from a dozen different directions by the children surrounding her. Silence fell sharply as Scarpy took another drink. Watching the children as they watched Scarpy, I realized what they reminded me of. A person anxious, anxiously watching a clock. I guessed that when the old man's drink was gone, the story he told would be over as well. Scarpy took another drink, no more than a sip this time, then set his cup down and pivoted on his stool to face us. Who would like to hear the story of a man who lost his eye and... Oh, sorry. <clears throat> who would like to hear the story of a man who lost his eye and gained a better sight? Something about the tone of his voice or the reaction of the other children told me this was a purely rhetorical question. So, Lanray and the Creation War, an old, old story. His eyes swept over the children. Sit and listen, for I will speak of the Shining City, as it once was years and miles away. Once, years and miles away, there was Myrterineal, the Shining City. It sat among the tall mountains of the world like a gem on the crown of a king. Imagine a city as large as Tarbine, but on every corner of every street there was a bright fountain or a green tree growing, or a statue so beautiful it would make a proud man cry to look at it. The buildings were tall and graceful, carved from the mountain itself, carved of a bright white stone that held the sun's light long after evening fell. Selatos was lord over Myrtariniel. Just by looking at a thing, Selatos could see its hidden name and understand it. In those days there were many who could do such things, but Selatos was the most powerful namer of anyone alive in that age. Selatos was well loved by the people he protected. His judgments were strict and fair, and none could sway him through falsehood or dissembling. Such was the power of his sight that he could read the hearts of men like heavy-lettered books. Now in those days there was a terrible war being fought across a vast empire. The war was called the Creation War, and the empire was called Ergen. Oh, is that, is that, let me, sorry, pausing for pronunciation guide. Okay, it's not there. <clears throat> and despite the fact that the world has never seen an empire as grand or a war so terrible, both of them only live in stories now. Even history books that mentioned them as doubtful rumor have long since crumbled into dust. The war had lasted so long that folk could hardly remember a time when the sky wasn't dark with the smoke of burning towns. Once there had been hundreds of proud cities scattered through the empire. Now there were merely ruins littered with the bodies of the dead. 
famine and plague were everywhere, and in some places there was such despair that mothers could no longer muster enough hope to give their children names. But eight cities remained. They were Belen, Antus, Veyret, Tenusa, Emlin, and the twin cities of Murilla and Murella. The last was Mir Tarreniel, greatest of them all, and the only one unscarred by the long centuries of war. It was protected by the mountains and brave soldiers, but the true cause of Mir Tarreniel's peace was Selitus. Using the power of his sight, he kept watch over the mountain passes leading to his beloved city. His rooms were in the city's highest towers, so he could see any attack long before it came to be a threat. The other seven cities, lacking Silitos's power, found their safety elsewhere. They put their trust in thick walls, in stone and steel. They put their trust in the strength of arm, in valor and bravery and blood. And so, they put their trust in Landre. Landre had fought since he could lift a sword, and by the time his voice began to crack, he was the equal of a dozen older men. He married a woman named Lyra, and his love for her was a passion fiercer than fury. Lyra was terrible and wise, and held a power just as great as his, for while Landre had the strength of his arm and the command of loyal men, Lyra knew the names of things, and the power of her voice could kill a man or still a thunderstorm. As the years passed, Landre and Lyra fought side by side. They defended Belen from a surprise attack, saving the city from a foe that should have overwhelmed them. They gathered armies and made the cities recognize the need for allegiance. Over the long years, they pressed the empire's enemies back. People who had grown numb with despair began to feel warm hope kindling inside. They hoped for peace, and they hung those flickering hopes on Lanre. Then came the Black of Trosen, Tor. Black meant battle, B-L-A-C, meant battle in the language of the time, and at Drosen Tor there was the largest and most terrible battle of this large and terrible war. They fought unceasing for three days in the light of the sun, and for three nights unceasing by the light of the moon. Neither side could defeat the other, and both were unwilling to retreat. Of the battle itself, I have only one thing to say. More people died at Drossentor than there are living in the world today. That is a lot of people. Ah, goodness, sorry. But yeah, that is a lot of people. Holy moly. <sighs> I... Something tells me he's not joking. Okay. Lanre was always where the fight was thickest, where he was needed most. His sword never left his hand or rested in its sheath. At the very end of things, covered in blood amid a field of corpses, Lanre stood alone against a terrible foe. It was a great beast, with scales of black iron, 
whose breath was a darkness that smothered men. Lanre fought the beast and killed it. Lanre brought victory to his side, but he bought it with his life. After the battle was finished and the enemy was set beyond the doors of stone, survivors found Lanre's body cold and lifeless near the beast he had slain. Word of Lanre's death spread quickly, covering the field like a blanket of despair. They had won the battle and turned the tide of war. They turned the tide of the war. <clears throat> but each of them, each of them felt cold inside. The small flame of hope that each of them had cherished began to flicker and fade. Their hopes had hung on Lanray, and Lanray was dead. In the midst of silence, Lyra, or sorry, Lyra, Lyra stood by Lanre's body and spoke his name. Her voice was a commandment. Her voice was steel and stone. Her voice told him to live again, but Lanre lay motionless and dead. In the midst of fear, Lyra knelt by Lanre's body and breathed his name. Her voice was a beckoning. Her voice was love and longing. Her voice called to him to live again. But Lanray lay cold and dead. In the midst of despair, Lyra fell across Lanray's body and wept his name. Her voice was a whisper. Her voice was echo and emptiness. Her voice begged him to live again. But Lanray lay breathless and dead. Lanre was dead. Lyra wept brokenly and touched his face with trembling hands. All around men turned their heads because the bloody field was less horrible to look upon than Lyra's grief. But Lanre heard her calling. Lanre turned at the sound of her voice and came to her. From beyond the doors of death, Lanre had returned. He spoke her name and took Lyra in his arms to comfort her. He opened his eyes and did his best to wipe away her tears with shaking hands, and then he drew a deep and living breath. The survivors of the battle saw Lanaray move, and they marveled. The flickering hope for peace each of them had nurtured for so long flared like hot fire inside them. Lanaray, Lyra, they shouted, their voices like thunder. Our Lord's love is stronger than death. Our Lady's voice has called him back. Together they have beaten death. Together how can we help but be victorious? So the war continued, but with Lanray and Lyra fighting side by side, the future seemed less grim. Soon everyone knew the story of how Lanray had died, and how his love and Lyra's power had drawn him back. For the first time in living memory, People could speak openly of peace without being seen as fools or madmen. Years passed. The Empire's enemies grew thin and desperate, and even the most cynical of men could see the end of the war was drawing swiftly near. Then rumors began to spread. Lyra was ill. Lyra had been kidnapped. Lyra had died. Lanray had fled the Empire. Lanray had gone mad. Some even said Lanre had killed himself and gone searching for his wife in the land of the dead. There were stories aplenty, but no one knew the truth of things. 
In the midst of these rumors, Lanray arrived in Myrterenia. He came alone, wearing his silver sword and hauberk. And what is this word? Habergen, Habergen of black iron scales. Goodness, okay, well, whatever. <sighs> I don't know how to. H a u b e r g e o n. Habergen, Habergen, Hab, Habergen, Habergen. I don't. Things are weird. Okay, uh, his armor fit him closely as a second skin of shadow. He had rotted from the carcass of the beast he had killed at Grossentor. Lanre asked Selatos to walk with him outside the city. Selatos agreed, hoping to learn the truth of Lanre's trouble and offer him what comfort a friend can give. They often kept each other's counsel, for they were both lords among their people. Selatos had heard the rumors, and he was worried. He feared for Lyra's, for Lyra's health, but more he feared for Lanre. Selatos was wise. He understood how grief can twist a heart, how passions drive good men to folly. Together they walked the mountain paths, Lanre leading the way. They came to a high place in the mountains where they could look out over the land. The proud towers of Myrtareniel shone brightly in the last light of setting sun. After a long time, Selatos said, I have heard terrible rumors concerning your wife. Lanre said nothing, and from his silence, Selatos knew that Lyra was dead. After another long pause, Selatos tried again. Though I do not know the whole of the matter, Myrtareniel is here for you, and I will lend whatever aid a friend can give. You have given me enough, old friend. Lanre turned and placed his hand on Selatos's shoulder. Silangsi, I bind you, by the name of stone, be still as stone. Eru, I command the air, lay leaden on your tongue. Selatos, I name you, may all your powers fail you but your sight. Selatos knew that in all the world there were only three people who could match his skill in names. Aleph, Ex, and Lyra, or sorry, Lyra. Lanre had no gift for names. His power lay in the strength of his arm. For him to attempt to bind Selatos by his name would be as fruitless as a, as a boy attacking a soldier with a willow stick. Nevertheless, Lanre's power lay on him like a great weight, like a vice of iron, and Selatos found himself unable to move or speak. He stood still as stone and could do nothing but marvel. How had Lanre come by such power? In confusion and despair, Selatos watched night settle in the mountains. With horror, he saw that some of the encroaching blackness was a great army moving upon Mir Tarenial. Worse still, no warning bells were ringing. Selatos could only stand and watch as the armor army crept closer in secret. Mir Tarenial was burned and butchered. The less uh, that is said of it, the better. The white walls were charred black, and the fountains ran with blood. For a night and a day, Selatos stood helpless beside Lanre, and could do nothing more than watch and listen to the screams of the dying, the ring of iron, the crack of breaking stone. 
When the next day dawned on the blackened towers of the city, Silatos found he could move. He turned to Lanre, and this time his sight did not fail him. He saw in Lanre a great darkness and a troubled spirit, but Silatos still felt the fetters of enchantment binding him. Fury and puzzlement warred within him, and he spoke, Lanre, what have you done? Lanre continued to look out over the ruins of Myrtardeniel. His shoulders stooped as though he bore a great weight. There was a weariness in his voice when he spoke. Was I accounted a good man, Salatos? You were counted among the best of us. We considered you beyond reproach. Yet I did this. Salatos could not bring himself to look upon his ruined city. Yet you did this, he agreed. Why? Lanre paused. My wife is dead. Deceit and treachery brought me to, to it, but her death is on my hands. He swallowed and turned to look out over the land. Salatos followed his eyes. From the vantage high in the mountains, he saw plumes of dark smoke rising from the land below. Salatos knew with certainty and horror that Myrtariniel was not the only city that had been destroyed. Lanre's allies had brought about the ruin of the last bastions of the empire. Lanre turned, and I counted among the best. Lanre's face was terrible to look upon. Grief and despair had ravaged it. I considered wise and good did all this, he gestured wildly. Imagine what holy things a lesser man must hold within his secret heart. Lanre faced mere Tyreniel, and a sort of peace came over him. For them at least, it is over. They are safe. Safe from the thousand evils of the everyday. Safe from the pains of an unjust fate. Selatos spoke softly. Safe from the joy and wonder. There is no joy, Lanre shouted in an awful voice. Stones shattered at the sound, and the sharp edges of echo came back to cut at them. Any joy that grows here is quickly choked by weeds. I am not some monster who destroys out of a twisted pleasure. I sow salt because the choice is between weeds and nothing. Selatos saw nothing but emptiness behind his eyes. Selatos stooped to pick up a jagged shard of mountain glass, pointed at one end. Will you kill me with a stone? Lanre gave a hollow laugh. I wanted you to understand, to know it was not madness that made me do these things. You are not mad, Salatos admitted. I see no madness in you. I hoped, perhaps, that you would join me in what I am to, what I aim to do, Lanre spoke, with a desperate longing in his voice. This world is like a friend with a mortal wound. <clears throat> Sorry, let me say that again. This world is like a friend with a mortal wound. A bitter draught given quickly only eases pain. Destroy the world? Selatos sa said softly to himself. You are not mad, Lanre. What grips you is something worse than madness. I cannot cure you. He fingered the needle-sharp point of the stone he held. Will you kill me to cure me, old friend? Lanre laughed again, terrible and wild. Then he looked at Selatos with sudden, desperate hope in his hollow eyes. 
Can you? he asked. Can you kill me, old friend? Selatos, his eyes unveiled, looked at his friend. He saw how Lanre, nearly mad with grief, had sought the power to bring Lyra back, Lyra back to life again. Out of love for Lyra, Lanre had sought knowledge where knowledge is better left alone and gained it at a terrible price. But even in the fullness of his hard-won power, he could not call Lyra back. Without her, Lanre's life was nothing but a burden, and the power he had taken up lay like a hot knife in his mind. To escape despair and agony, Lenre had killed himself, taking the final refuge of all men, attempting to escape beyond the doors of death. But just as Lyra's love had drawn him back from, the past, from past the final door before, so this time Lenre's power forced him to return from sweet oblivion. His new one power burned him back into his body, forcing him to live. Selatos looked at Lanre and understood all. Before the power of his sight, these things hung like dark tapestries in the air about Lanre's shaking form. I can kill you, Selatos said, then looked away from Lanre's expression, suddenly hopeful. For an hour, or a day, but you would return, pulled like iron to a loden stone. Your name burns with power in you. I can no more extinguish it than I could throw a stone and strike down the moon. Lanre's shoulders bowed. I had hoped, he said simply, but I knew the truth. I am no longer the Lanre you knew. Mine is a new and terrible name. I am Haliax, and no door can bar my passing. All is lost to me, no Lyra. No sweet escape of sleep, no blissful forgiveness. Even madness is beyond me. Death itself is an open doorway to my power. There is no escape. I have only the hope of oblivion after everything is gone. And in... And the Alu fall nameless from the sky. What is that? The Alu? 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 Pronunciation guide. And the Alu. Okay. And the Alu fall nameless from the sky. And as he said this, Lanre hid his face in his hands, and his body shook with silent racking sobs. Selotos looked out on the land below and felt a small spark of hope. Six plumes of smoke rose from the land below. Miratariniel was gone, and six cities destroyed. But that meant all was not lost. One city still remained. In spite of all that had happened, Selatos looked at Lanre with pity, and when he spoke it was with sadness in his voice. Is there nothing, then? No hope? He lay one hand on Lanre's arm. There is sweetness in life, even after all of this. I will help you look for it, if you will try. No, said Lanre. He stood to his full height, his face regal behind the lines of grief. There is nothing sweet. I will sow salt, lest the bitter weeds grow. I am sorry, Selatos said. 
and stood upright as well. Then Selatos spoke in a great voice, Never before has my sight been clouded. I failed to see the truth inside your heart. Ah, pardon me. Selatos drew a deep breath. By my eye I was deceived. Never again. He raised the stone and drove its needle point into his own eye. His scream echoed among the rocks as he fell to his knees gasping. May I never again be so blind. A great silence descended, and the fetters of enchantment fell away from Silitos. He cast the stone at Lenray's feet and said, By the power of my own blood I bind you. By your own name let you be accursed. Silitos spoke the long name that lay in Lanre's heart, and at the sound of it the sun grew dark and wind tore stones from the mountainside. Then Selatos spoke, This is my doom upon you. May your face always may your face be always held in shadow, black as the toppled towers of my beloved Mir Tyrinial. This is my doom upon you. Your own name will be turned against you, that you shall have no peace. This is my doom upon you, and all who follow you. May it last until the world ends, and the Elu fall nameless from the sky. I suppose, what is that, Elu? They must be stars? Selotos watched as a darkness gathered around Landre. Soon nothing could be seen of his handsome features, only a vague impression of nose and mouth and eyes. All the rest was shadow, black and seamless, then Selatos stood and said, You have beaten me once through guile, but never again. Now I see truer than before, and my power is upon me. I cannot kill you, but I can send you from this place. Be gone. The sight of you is all the fouler, knowing that you once were fair. But even as he spoke them, the words were bitter in his mouth. Lanray, let's see, Lanray, his face in shadow darker than starless night was blown away like smoke upon the wind. Then Selatos bowed his head and wept hot tears of blood upon the earth. It wasn't until Scarpy stopped speaking that I noticed how lost in the story I had become. He tilted his head back and drained the last of the wine from his wide clay cup. He turned it upside down and set it on the bar with a dull thump of finality. There was a small clamor of questions, comments, pleas, and thanks from the children, who had remained still as stones throughout the story. Scarpy made a small gesture to the barkeep, who set out a mug of beer, as the children began to trickle out onto the street. Let's see. I waited until the last of them had left before I approached him. He turned those diamond-blue eyes on me, and I stammered. Thank you. I wanted to thank you. My father would have loved that story. It's the... I broke off. I wanted to give you this. I brought out an iron halfpenny. I didn't know what was going on, so I didn't pay. My voice seemed rusty. This was probably more than I had spoken in a month. He looked closely at me. Here are the rules, he said, tickling ticking them off on his gnarled fingers. One, don't talk while I'm talking. Two, give a small coin if you have it to spare. 
He looked at the halfpenny on the bar. Not wanting to admit how much I needed it, I sought for something else to say. Do you know many stories? He smiled, and the network of lines that crossed his face turned to make themselves part of that smile. I only know one story, but oftentimes small pieces seem to be stories themselves. He took a drink. It's growing all around us, in the manor houses of the Sealdim and the workshops of the Sealdar, over the storm wall in the great sand sea, in the low stone houses of the Adem, full of silent conversation, and sometimes, he smiled, sometimes the stories growing in squalid backstreet bars dockside in Tarbeen. His bright eyes looked deep into me, as if I were a book that he could read. There's no good story that doesn't touch the truth, I said, repeating something my father used to say, mostly to fill the silence. It felt strange talking to someone again, strange but good. There's as much truth here as anywhere, I suppose. It's too bad the world could do with a little less truth and a little more. I trailed off, not knowing what I wanted more of. I looked down at my hands, and found myself wishing they were cleaner. He slid the halfpenny toward me. I picked it up, and he smiled. His rough hand uh, lit lightly as a bird on my shoulder. Every day except morning, sixth bell, more or less. I started to leave, then stopped. Is it true? The story? I made an inarticulate gesture, the part you told today. All stories are true, Scarpy said. But this one really happened, if that's what you mean. He took another slow drink, then smiled again. His bright eyes dancing, more or less. You have to be a bit of a liar to tell a story the right way. Too much truth confuses the facts. Too much honesty makes you sound insincere. My father used to say the same thing. As soon as I mentioned him, a confusing welter of emotions rose up in me. Only when I saw Scarpy's eyes following me did I realize I was backing nervously towards the exit. I stopped and forced myself to turn and walk out the door. I'll be here if I can. I heard the smile in his voice behind me. I know. Well, that'll do for tonight. Sorry again for getting this out a little late, but it is what it is, and sometimes these things can't be helped. So, all right, have a good night, and I will be back tomorrow.